At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the Pittsburgh CityCast with Tim Benz, presented by Bet Rivers. When Pitt's doing well, when Penn State's doing well, and West Virginia's doing well, it's really good for college football, especially in the tri-state area. The Backyard Brawl is tomorrow. Tim Benz here on the Pittsburgh CityCast brought to you by BetRivers. Download the app today or go to BetRivers.com. That's Chris McKillop. He was a guest of mine on the Breakfast with Benz podcast at Trib Live. We're going to hear from him and Jed Drenning. McKillop, a former Pitt Panther defensive lineman. Drenning, a former West Virginia quarterback as we are going to preview the game between the Mountaineers and the Pitt Panthers. First game since 2011 between the two schools as the Backyard Brawl reignites a special Backyard Brawl edition of sorts today here on the CityCast. And to that point, kickoff for the college football season. You can kick it off with Bet Rivers Online Sportsbook. Join Bet Rivers every Saturday of the college football season for a 20% parlay profit boost of at least three legs with new promotions and props every day. Bet Rivers is your go-to sports book. Download the Bet Rivers app or go to betrivers.com today. It's a whole new game. Pitt minus eight over the West Virginia Mountaineers. That's where the line stands right now. I like Pitt even at that number. I got in on it when it was seven. I don't like how it's going up. I think it's somewhere in the 10-point range is how Pitt is going to win this one. I do think the Panthers are better equipped to move into a new tenure with a new quarterback. I think the offense of Kenny Pickett from last year is 
easily adaptable to Keaton Slovis. Maybe Slovis doesn't move like Pickett did. We'll see. We'll learn about him. But the offensive line is supposed to be performing well and in good shape. The defensive line for Pitt might be the strength of the team. The young wide receivers as a collective could absorb the loss of Jordan Addison. In fact, I'm adjusting what I said during training camp when I talked to Wes Euler out in Westmoreland County at St. Vincent College in Latrobe. Wes, who hosts a couple of podcasts for West Virginia. Uh, I'm sorry, was that Freudian? West Virginia. little shout-out there for you, Wes. Um, I, I do think now that Pitt is going to go over the 8.5 for the season. Um, if you want to look at Pitt's over-under total, uh, it's now this is a big hook that it's at 8.5. Uh, if you go under, it's at minus 127. If it's over, it's plus 100. It was at 8 before. Uh, at eight and a half, I'm going to adjust and say over. I've talked myself into seeing them not slipping too terribly much without Kenny Pickett. I like the strengths of the team. I like the weakness of the schedule. And if it's plus money for the over, take it. Because I think it's a 50-50 coin toss and the odds are not. So uh, I go with the over on Pitt there. West Virginia at six games. Same sort of thing. If it was at six and a half, I'd go under. If it was at five and a half, I'd go over, but it's at six on the nose. The over is plus 120. Uh, Same sort of concept. If you're giving me plus money on the over, and I think it was at minus 155 for the under for West Virginia, uh, I'm going to go with the over because I'm just not paying as much, and I think it's a coin toss. So go with West Virginia on the over there. Penn State also playing on Thursday against Purdue. Penn State... Uh, Right now is a a three-and-a-half-point favorite at West Lafayette. I know Mike loves the Purdue Boilermakers. Mike Pursuta, who you'll hear from later in the week on the podcast. I'm torn on this game. I think Penn State wins, but I think this could be a less-than-touchdown game. So give me the points with Purdue. Maybe buy it up to plus four and take the Boilermakers at home. I think Penn State walks away with the win. If you want to go money line in the Nittany Lions, it's minus 180. Um, the money is split at even minus 110 between the three-and-a-half-point line between the two teams, over-under at 52. I'm going to kind of leave that one alone. I'm leaving a lot of the college over-unders alone until I see how some of these quarterbacks are going to do in their offenses and you know teams that have new systems. Maybe not applicable to this game in general. I'm just speaking overall um, when it comes to over-unders in college football, but uh, hey, I got burned in my college football bet last week, which was Wyoming and Illinois. I saw Illinois with Tommy DeVito. I, I never thought Tommy DeVito was going to be 14 points better than anybody when he was a Syracuse quarterback. I knew that Wyoming team was in trouble. All, all I know about this now is I'm betting at Wyoming or betting against Wyoming at every possible turn. <laughs> I'm, I, there's no way you're going to keep me from betting on the Cowboys games and betting against them in the process based on what I saw against the Illini, who I don't think are that good, especially with DeVito at quarterback, but maybe he's turned over a new leaf or done better in a new system or or whatever. But that just was so wildly underwhelming from Wyoming a week ago. I mean, 38-6, to wow, that was really eye-opening about how far the Cowboys need to go. But anyway, back to the Penn State-Purdue game. I would just buy it up uh, as much as you feel comfortable with with Purdue getting the points. My gut tells me Penn State wins a real close, kind of ugly one. Um, But if you're going to give me points at home, I'll take it early in the season with the Boilermakers. The over-under for Penn State 
is at eight and a half. Uh, minus 112 for the over, minus 114 for the under. Basically, no difference in the price. I think Penn State's an eight-win team, so I feel comfortable just playing it basic and go with the under there for the Nittany Lions. Steelers and Bengals, uh, the opener for the Steelers, holding steady at six and a half. Um, I'm just going to kind of go on a side tangent here for the Steelers for today. We'll talk much more X and O's and in-depth with the Steelers, Mike Pursuta, and with um, Matt Williamson later on in the week. But I, I do want to just focus on one little nugget that I heard today about the Steelers. And, and this is, again, more of a broad-based thing as you're going to be betting on the Steelers throughout the course of the season. And that is, there was some gambling outlet that was running an ad online. And, you know, they kind of, this is our game of the week. This is our pick of the week, that sort of thing. And they brought up the Steelers being, I think it was 3-10 and 10 against the number in their last 13 games, or it might've been three and seven in their last 10, whatever it was. The point being that you want to go with Cincinnati because the Steelers are bad against the number in the opener. Well, that juxtaposes what happened last year when they certainly covered against the bills and surprised them and beat them outright. So there's an incongruous disconnect right there off the hop, but the bigger picture conversation is when you see trends for the Steelers gambling wise, and you see XXX over their last however many games in Cleveland. When you see uh, they are this percentage covering the team, this percentage of an over team, this percentage of an under team in this building, in this month, over this swath of time, um, at home, Monday night football, Sunday night football, like whatever gauge people want to throw in there as an historic reference for what the spread is, you've got to keep in mind that those numbers aren't applicable now because Ben Roethlisberger isn't here. Like, I know people always are going to associate those trends and those historic numbers with Mike Tomlin because he is the connective thread back to whatever number they are putting forth. But you also have to remember that the quarterback was the one on the field that was playing in most of these games. Like, especially when you're going to see what the Steelers' record is in Cincinnati, what the Steelers' record is in Cleveland, what the Steelers' record has been against the spread when they go to Baltimore or where Baltimore comes to now Acrisure Stadium. You know, it's a very different landscape when it comes to gambling on the Steelers now because of what Roethlisberger's influence was on all of those outcomes. Uh, for better or for worse, you know, like the next time they play the Raiders, you know, Ben was what, two and five overall against the Raiders. My gut tells me he probably covered the spread one time against the Raiders in his life as quarterback. That changes uh, what they were against the Broncos, especially in Denver with Roethlisberger at, as the quarterback. Uh, I bet you that number is pretty bad for the most part. Uh, he does not have a good record against them. Like that stuff doesn't matter as much now. You're not going to be able to go on as much historical data betting on the Steelers. Um, and that goes for live betting too. You know, like fourth quarter, all the Steelers always make a comeback. Well, that's because of Ben. Maybe not with Mitch Trubisky or Kenny Pickett or Mason Rudolph. So just kind of keep all that in mind as you're parsing through how much you want to invest on the Steelers and how much you want to invest in historical data about what they do in certain environments and against certain opponents. All right, um, let's give the Pirates. They are plus 225 against the Brewers after a nice win last night. Minus 265 for Milwaukee. Zach Thompson against Freddie Peralta. I'll take the Brewers there at minus 265. 
Um, the Pirates have had a couple of gutty efforts against the Brewers. Uh, they lost in the walk-off on Monday. Uh, they held off the Brewers in the ninth and put some insurance on the board in the ninth because of what O'Neill Cruz did. And speaking of Cruz, yeah, he had another missile of a homer on Monday, this time 117 miles per hour during that loss to the Brewers. And that was impressive. We haven't talked since then. You know what might be more impressive, though? His game Tuesday night as part of the Pirates win over Milwaukee. It was 4-2 to last night, so uh, I believe that stayed under. Uh, I think it was at 6.5 or 7 last night. Might have gone up to 7.5, I'm not sure. But with Keller pitching, you never know what you're going to get, but you're finding more and more good starts of late than bad. And what do you have, 10 strikeouts last night? I haven't played a Mitch Keller strikeout over-under in a while, but maybe I'll start doing that. Uh, Cruz didn't have any homers that will break stack cast or trend on Twitter, but he did have an RBI single, a walk, and a clutch RBI double on a 2-2 count to left center field on a pitch up and slightly away, providing an insurance run in the ninth. And he is the rarest pirate prospect who gives this fan base something to get excited about, a talented physical specimen with enough raw potential that he may someday become a Major League Baseball superstar. Someday. When he figures out, better command of the strike zone and isn't hitting 206 with a strikeout to walk ratio of 85 to 16 and an on-base percentage of 261. His plate appearances Tuesday started to show those things will and should come into focus when he has more major league seasoning. But those are the numbers that few who follow the Pirates seem willing to discuss in the same depth that they do exit velocity with which Cruz hits the ball. When he does make contact, the only things that seem to move faster than Cruz's home runs or singles, like the 122-mile-an-hour one off the wall in Pittsburgh against the Braves last week, the only thing that moves faster than his hits are the gushy, fawning tweets from the fingers of those who are all too willing to promote anything Cruz does well but don't appear willing to want to engage in any part of the discussion about his struggles. That push-pull always seems to come back to the topic of exit velocity. In one camp, there are those who can't wait to attach increased importance to any hit Cruz gets based on how hard he hits it. In the other, there are those who see exit velocity as a measurement that's being used to hype up Cruz's good moments so there's more to talk about instead of all the times he strikes out. So consider me in the second camp. But contrary to what Twitter will tell you, that doesn't mean I'm some sort of old-school dinosaur who's yelling at clouds about these darn kids and their technology today. I don't need to be dragged into the 21st century to appreciate hitting stats beyond the big three with batting average homers and RBIs. I get why the exit velocity stat is important. It's important beyond the curiosity level of, hey, isn't it cool how hard that guy hit that pitch? It's a predictive measure. The goal is to hit the ball every swing. And a player who hits the ball consistently hard is far more likely to reach base when he puts the ball in play than someone who isn't. So it's not complex. So yeah, exit velocity and many similar stack cast measurements are useful tools. Often how they are applied is where I take issue. Because with Cruz and other young power hitters, we get mesmerized by how hard they hit the ball when they do make contact, but in their quest to do so, how often they are overswinging and striking out instead of cutting back on a difficult pitch and trying to hit a single the other way, that has to come into play with how the exit velocity is truly indicating what they're going to do, how predictive the measure really is. 
or, you know, like sending a pitch back up the middle as opposed to turning on it and trying to jack a homer to the pull side or to the alley at 120 miles an hour. I mean, look at that double for Cruz of the ninth. It was still struck at 112 miles per hour. He's huge. When Cruz hits something, it's going to come off the bat with some zip. How he got to that pitch up in the zone with two strikes in that situation, to me, was much more impressive than how hard he hit it. According to Baseball Savant, Cruz's average exit velocity this year is 91.6. That would be good for 15th among MLB qualified hitters this season. However, among hitters with at least 200 plate appearances, his whiff percentage of 38.2 is 5th in MLB. His out-of-zone swing and miss percentage of 56.2 is 18th. And his strikeout percentage of 37.6 is 3rd. All I'm asking is to stop harping on these NFL combine-type stats to the point that we're talking around the complexities of what it's going to take for Cruz to become a successful Major League hitter, which means taking games like last night and making them the standard more than the exception. Pimping Cruz's exit velocity nonstop is like drooling over the six foot four NFL wide receiver who runs a low 4-3, 40-yard dash but can't run a route and drops too many passes. Except baseball is such a stat-happy sport, we can take any granular predictive measure and treat it as if it is far more of a tangible reflection of success. This isn't about hating fun or raining on a parade. It's trying to get a grip on what the numbers are really saying and if they matter, why they matter. Or specifically in the case of Cruz, why this one specific number shouldn't matter as much as we are insisting that it does. And why plate appearances like the one he had Tuesday night should matter more. My problem isn't with Cruz. My problem isn't with StatCast. My problem is with the changing media landscape and sports fan populace that seems to be morphing the expectation and responsibilities of what the media should be. We aren't supposed to be promotional departments. Teams have those on their own. It's my job to help synthesize the data. It's not my job to help promote crews and the Pirates instead of just focusing on the stats, games, results, at-bats themselves, and giving my opinions on them. We're supposed to be reporters and or commentators and opinion makers, not informed cheerleaders. You know, I think exit velocity is fun too, but at the same time, I also think it loses its starch to describe Cruz's game when we just harp on it all the time. Like, for instance, it's sort of like when Shaq broke into the NBA and you're like, hey, did you see Shaq dunk last night? Yeah, that's what he's supposed to do. That's how he's built. I think the analogy holds with O'Neal Cruz too. By the way, he's plus 525 to Homer today against the um, Milwaukee Brewers. If you want to get him for two homers, he's plus 6,000 uh, for O'Neill Cruz to get at least one hit, minus 152. That might be worth it with the way he hits against the Brewers. All right, um, let's get back to the backyard brawl. I said we would do that. Let's hear from Jed Drenning right now. He is a former West Virginia quarterback. He is now the sideline reporter for West Virginia Mountaineer Broadcasts, and he joined me on the Breakfast with Ben's podcast this week to look at the backyard brawl. Here's Jed Drenning, a portion of my conversation with him on the Pittsburgh CityCast. 
Jed, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for doing this. And uh, how much are you looking forward to seeing this rivalry reunited? Uh, it's exciting. Uh, it's in some respects been 11 years in the making, right? But I know that uh, I was at a function recently with Shane Lyons, our athletic director. and He, he had mentioned that uh, one of his first orders of business in taking the job as the AD was to get games like this, more specifically the pit game, back on the schedule. And even though that was seven years ago, people back then talked as, oh, come on, that's a million years away. Well, that time's really gone quickly. And uh, so here we are, but uh, the anticipation has been building up for at least seven years, but more likely, like I said, 11 since the last time we squared off in Morgantown in 2011. In any of those three years that you were part of the broadcast, when, when you're down on the field, what was it like? Mm-hmm. Chippy, you know, as you would expect of a rivalry. Uh, even uh, it really starts in the pregame. You know, some of the smack talk, some of the leaning in, uh, some of the aggressiveness uh, on both sides verbally, right? Uh, and then throughout the course of the game, you notice as kids are getting bumped into one sideline or the other, uh, both teams are guilty of a little extra nudge here and there. So uh, everything definitely ratchets, it ratchets up to a certain level. Uh, but the intensity for the better uh, part of 60 minutes, I'd say for the balance of four quarters, the intensity was high in all three of those, those games that I was part of in 2009 and 10 and 11. And uh, I think this is really the lifeblood of uh, what makes college football. It's something that's been sorely absent from West Virginia's schedule. For all the positives that have come with the Big East, this is what's been lacking, these regional rivals and what regional rival trumps the rivalry between uh, Pitt and West Virginia and the brawl. No doubt about it. And I look at it from the standpoint of, you know, for Pitt fans who have for so long wanted to see the rivalry Uh, reinvigorated with Penn State and a lot of Penn State fans sort of dismissing it as not being all that important or no big deal. You know, the one thing that's different about this one is that even though I think the administrators could have worked harder on Pitt's side to get it going back again sooner, the fan base, I think, has always wanted it back. There's never been, I think anyway, that sort of level of snobbery that has existed when Penn State has looked at Pitt from the fan base perspective. I think the Pitt fans have always wanted this game back. I can't speak for the Pitt fans, but I can certainly tell you that in the Mountain State, West Virginia uh, has missed this game. The, the Mountaineer fans have missed this game. And it's it's one of those handful of games that growing up, so many stories revolve around where were you when Bill McKenzie kicked the field goal? Where were you when Jeff Hostetler ran the bootleg? I mean, the stories go on and on. Where were you when Chad Johnson hit Zach Abraham? And I'm sure Pitt fans have similar stories, and, and that's what makes a rivalry. For all the things that you do over the balance of your career, the kids on the team right now recognize that their legacy could be authored on Thursday night by what happens in this football game. Everything else, you know, notwithstanding, What you do against a rival, the magnitude of the Pitt Panthers, really, really, really matters in terms of what you're going to leave behind uh, as a legacy at West Virginia as a player. I think there's a large element of that present in Pittsburgh, too, when it comes to how the fans will remember this game, especially the Pitt alumni. Um, You know, Pitt just won the ACC, and that's a great achievement for them, and I, I think that was more about, hey, look at what a great coronation this is for Kenny Pickett, and that's going to be even more the case as time goes by because he ended up getting drafted by the Steelers. But the schedule, um, the elements of what go into a year-to-year routine since they got in the ACC, it's always about can you beat Clemson, but that's what everybody says. There has to be a unique, I think, sink your teeth into it rival within the conference, and 
to your point about, you know, for West Virginia going to the Big 12, I think Pitt has kind of lacked that in the ACC, too. Yeah, and th- there's something to be said for we entered the Big 12. Now, granted, we might have joined a bunch of like-minded fan bases. We really did. Culturally, I think that there's a lot of parallels between West Virginia and the teams populating the Big 12. They're huge football schools, okay, mm-hmm. land-grant uh, universities. But, but, like, I remember back when we were in the Big East, sometimes as a broadcast team, we'd go out for dinner, we'd be the visiting team in town on a Friday night, and we'd ask our server, hey, what do you think of the game tomorrow? And the answer sometimes was, what game? Okay, well, you're not getting the what game response when you're in Big 12 country, all right? I mean, everybody is acutely aware whether their team is good, middle of the pack, or, or bad. I mean, in Lawrence, Kansas, they see the WVU logo on our, on our uh, shirts, and they're asking questions about the game the next day. So I think from that standpoint, culturally, it's been a good fit. But what you just touched on is, in fact, what's missing. When the closest game that you play is 700 miles or more away in Ames, Iowa, how can you really foster a legitimate rivalry? You can't create rivalries out of whole cloth. I mean, they're an organic thing. Now, part of it with Pitt and West Virginia, the tradition of it is, yes, proximity does breed contempt. And being 74 yards of, 74 miles apart with the uh, stadiums, that does matter. But at the same time, culturally, they're so different city folk versus mountain folk, you know, urban versus rural, right? I mean, you know, a a school planted right in the middle uh, of a metro area uh, versus uh, a school on the edge of a very rural state. So culturally, there's a lot of differences. And I think when you bake that into the equation along with the proximity and how close the two institutions are and the fact that so many West Virginia folks work in Pennsylvania, so many Pennsylvania folks commute to West Virginia, all these things matter. And I don't just mean over the handful, a handful of years, but even generationally you know when two three four more generations have these same or similar stories that's where a rivalry comes from jed drenning our guest former wvu quarterback longtime member of the wvu broadcast team backyard brawl at Ackershire stadium and it's coming up on thursday night first game of the year for both teams Pitt coming in as uh, at this time jed a six and a half point to seven point favorite depending on where you look at it uh, how does that line sit with you? And do you think that Pitt right now coming off of last year is a worthy favorite? What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I would start with this. Uh, why wouldn't they be, right? Let's start with this. They're defending ACC champs. That's impressive unto its own. Uh, 13 starters repeat or returning from that team. Now, yeah, they lost some key guys, but I think they've done a very good job of putting productive guys in those roles to replace those key guys, whether it's a wideout, whether it's a quarterback. So, yeah, I think there's enough moving parts returning on this pit roster, uh, complemented by the addition of the new talent they're bringing in, that it stands to reason that a West Virginia team coming off a six and seven season, uh, which suffered some attrition through the offseason. Now, we've done a pretty good job of answering some of those questions in the portal as well. But on the field, we haven't proven anything yet. So it makes sense to me that Pitt would be favored coming into this game. What has been your impression since you've had the opportunity to see many coaches uh, at West Virginia of of Neil Brown so far? Uh, Neil Brown, I I look at it as this. Coaches typically come in one of two molds. Either they're a hotshot coordinator type that is so incredibly talented at one part of the game that they make a name for themselves and parlay parlay that into a head job. And then there's the other type. There's the big picture CEO type, okay? I think Neil wears the CEO hat very well. He understands, even though he has a pedigree in the air raid, even though he came up as an offensive coordinator and he was a receiver for Mike Leach, he was at ground zero for a lot of this air raid stuff, he still sees the game in a very complimentary fashion. 
and he appreciates the interconnectivity of special teams, offense, defense. And so as a play caller in the past, even as an air raid guy, he wasn't a guy who was often going to put his defense in harm's way and ask him to defend 75, 85 snaps if, if they could avoid it. So he is an air raid guy. He's this unique animal that is a guy with an offensive pedigree that I think defensive coordinators should really enjoy coaching for. So I think that's what we've seen in Neil Brown. And he, he treats the whole person as something unique. I mean, each individual player has strengths, weaknesses that need addressed. That's both on and off the field. But it's very apparent to anybody who knows Neil Brown. He's a quality human being, a quality individual. I could give you one-off stories and go way out into the weeds with this, just telling you the things he's done for me and my family when nobody expected it, nobody asked for it. He's a super guy that also happens to be a super football coach. So let me get into that next question then. You dovetailed quite nicely into where I wanted to go next, and that is what is that sort of – air raid background going to look like with the offense this year well that is the question because now we get another guy you want to talk about ground zero with mike leach well who's more ground zero with mike leach than graham harrell right yeah. so i mean graham harrell was there for the glory of it all i mean the michael crabtree play that beat texas he's the guy who threw it right one of the uh, most celebrated plays in college football the last quarter century he authored that play so when you look at his history as a play caller his evolution as a play caller his first job as a coordinator, because he coached with Mike Leach at Washington State, coaching receivers, he recognized, look, Mike's never going to give up the play calling duties. I understand that. He's never going to give up the coaching the quarterback duties. I understand that. So he took a job as the OC for Seth, Seth Luttrell at North Texas. And what's interesting about that, Seth Luttrell, another air raid guy, but an air raid guy who appreciated and skewed toward the running dimensions of a football game. Okay, so he appreciates the run game and the role that it can play in a productive, productive offense. Well, that's the first guy that Graham Harrell was calling plays for and I think that influenced his play selection on some level and you saw that continue as he moved to USC that being said he does appreciate and understand the value of a run game but he's going to push it vertical he's going to challenge you and the other thing that's in interesting about it you can also and the way that he puts plays together and concepts together see some NFL influences in there as well so I think what happens is he draws from a vast history as a player and makes him a very talented play caller. Jed Drenning with us from the West Virginia broadcast team, former West Virginia quarterback as well. Jed, what's your thought on JT Daniels being named the starting quarterback for West Virginia and your thoughts on the quarterback room in general? I mean, we got four kids in that room that can produce. Uh, three of those kids were here by themselves in the spring. I've said this half a dozen times. I'll say it a half a dozen more. I can't say enough about them. I don't know what happens tomorrow. I don't know what happens next week or next month. But in today's age, with the escape hatch sitting right there wide open for you to get out and go somewhere else with the portal, yeah. all three of those guys competed through the spring. And even after the announcement of JT coming to campus, decided, you know what? I'm going to stick it out, and I'm going to continue to compete. So I think that says a lot for the youth and the talent in that room and for the character in that room. And what more can you say about JT Daniels? A battle-tested five-star for a reason. He was unbeaten at Georgia, not just because of the supporting cast. He was productive at USC. Again, part of that production, he spent an offseason learning this scheme with Graham Harrell, and that obviously weighed pretty heavily in, into his decision to come here. But I, I think we're very happy with where that room is. Neil said the other day, look, we're in good shape as far as the president goes but we're also in good shape as far as the future goes I think there's a lot of merit to that 
I want to go back to something you brought up earlier when you were talking about how fans oftentimes can rattle off where they were just based on the moment or based on the highlight or based on the year when you say the backyard brawl for all those. I don't like where this is going. <laughs> With all those positive moments. If you say 13 to 9 in West Virginia, do they have the Francisco Cabrera reaction that I would have if you brought up that play to me as a Pittsburgh fan growing up? Uh, you know what? I'm a pirate fan too. <laughs> so, uh, you See, just zinged me twice. You know right? where I'm coming from on that, uh, then, on. right? Come on, man! I'll sit, Bream. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, yeah, we're, anyway, we're, we co- we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of that one too. Oh, by the oh, way. Oh, here we go. I mean, what are you trying to do to me here? But uh, I can only take one of these narratives in one segment. But <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's the uh, both of those are the day we dare not speak of, right? But and, you know, 13 to nine. Uh, again, what happens when upsets play out? More often than not, if you do a post-mortem on an upset, okay, you can typically discover something after the fact that you didn't see going in, right? Um, I mean, irrespective of whether it's Happy State upset Michigan. Yeah, you can recognize, boy, Happy State had some skilled guys that went on to the NFL. From a matchup standpoint, they really put those guys out on the perimeter and forced uh, Michigan's DBs on the island. Eh, it was going to be a handful for them, right? Uh, well, West Virginia, what I look at there is after the fact, what that played out like was a pit team that, yeah, struggled offensively throughout the course of the year. But time now tells us that one of the, if not perhaps the most talented guy on the field was Shady McCoy. Look what he's done since then yeah. in the NFL, right? So what Pitt did, to Wanstead's credit, was they leaned on the skill and talent of Shady. 38 carries, 148 yards. They played keep away defensively, okay? And I mean from the very first start of, of a live clock snap – Pat Bostick took that play clock down to one on the second play of the game. So they were trying to take the air out of it. Why wouldn't they against that offense, right? Defensively, Pitt had the fifth-ranked defense in the country that year. I mean, this is the same Pitt team that went on the road and knocked off a ranked Cincinnati team. So it wasn't the only time they did something like this. But this is what I see in the postmortem. Factor in the injury to Pat White. Now, we should have played better without Pat White for two and a half quarters in the game. Absolutely, we should have. Paul Rhodes' defense tackled absolutely lights out. I've never seen a defense for the balance of 60 minutes that didn't miss a single tackle in space. So what I look at from a game plan standpoint, everything broke Pitt's way, and it went exactly according to script. Okay, Here are two numbers that I don't think you'll ever again see exist in the same world and these two numbers existed in that game pit of the football for 36 minutes fair enough that happens every week somebody dominates time possession right 36 minutes Mm -hmm. kept our offense off the field here's what you don't see with that pit of the ball for 36 minutes and yet only had 225 total yards mathematically that seems almost impossible I mean, I think if you paid them and tried to do that you couldn't but yet they pulled that off and they did so by and this is again it was all by design taking the air out of the game from the very first live snap all the way through next thing you know we miss a couple field goals next thing you know pat white gets hurt all of a sudden it's a game in the second quarter and they're interested so again the post-mortem as painful as it might be you find some sort of explanation i mean what i felt going into that game i know we were a heavy favorite i was expecting a 48 to 10 type game i'm not so sure that i did but for one reason we played the week before 
against a ranked UConn team that had a number three scoring defense in the country at the time. That's hard to believe now, right? Yeah. But that UConn team was pretty good. Didn't they have like – was that when DJ Hernandez was the quarterback? They had somebody – Yes, and, and we blew the doors off them 66-21, 500-plus yards rushing. And what I would consider the most complete football game we played in Rich Rodriguez's seven years in Morgantown. Now, the only concern I had, you don't play a perfect game very often with 20-year-old kids and even play well again seven days later no matter what the circumstances are. So that worried me. I thought we'd go through the motions. It'd be ugly, rough around the edges, and it'd be 23, 26 to 10, something like that. I didn't think something for the time capsule, but I but I never for a second thought, you know what, we're not going to make a single play, whether it's Steve, whether it's Pat, whether it's Noel, whether it's Darius Renaud. Nobody's going to bust a single play open, and Pitt's going to make every play in space all night and beat us. I didn't see that coming. And that's what happened. Yeah, I think the two things that stand out about it when people talk about it up here is, well, number one, I think Pat Bostic is the one who said, where's the effect of we got on the bus and I was still waiting for Patrick White to take it 40 yards for a touchdown. You know, like <laughs> at yeah, some point yeah. like, we were, you know, the, the clock was at zeros and I'm still looking to see if Pat White's going up the sidelines for 70. Sure. You know, that's basically what he said. Why wouldn't you? And, and then the other thing that came to me, I heard Scott McKillop just say this the other day, the former linebacker for Pitt, that, what they kept waiting for from a schematic point of view was we were coming at the offensive line, attacking the offensive line so much. We were just waiting for him, daring him to go deep over the top and it never happened. Um, that's probably the schematic that I think people might look back and say, well, why not take at least one shot? I, I know white was hurt, but why not take at least one shot? Yeah. They threw resources at the box and they kind of begged us to do some other things in the perimeter creatively, yeah. uh, whether that was a main conversion route, whether that was pushing something up top, but I, I'm right there with you all the way down to the fourth and 18 at the other end of the field. I was still expecting us to somehow, some way, uh, with all those playmakers on the field, it happened so many times, make a play. Now it's really going to be one for the ages. We're going to win this on the final play on fourth and 18. I was still expecting that on some strange level to play out and it didn't. All right, so my thanks to Jed Drenning. We come back. Chris McKillop joins me. He's a defensive lineman and alum from the University of Pittsburgh, a former Pitt Panther, played in three backyard brawls. We'll get the Pitt perspective when we come back here in the Pittsburgh CityCast. Kick off football season with Bet Rivers Online Sportsbook. All season long, Bet Rivers is your go to sportsbook for all football related content. Check out betrivers.com or download the Bet Rivers app for the latest odds, unique promotions, player props, and more. Every week, Bet Rivers has unique football specials to help you win big. Cheer on your favorite teams or back your favorite players with Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Presented by Rivers Casino Pittsburgh. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. All right, glad you're still with us. Chris McKillop, my guest here on the Pittsburgh CityCast at this time. Uh, you know, Chris, as an alum of the University of Pittsburgh, a former. Panther for four years, played in three backyard brawls, was injured for one. Uh, he joined me on the Breakfast Benz podcast this week, as did Jed Drenning. So I thought we'd have a perspective from both schools, from alumni of both programs. Uh, Chris, now living in Washington, where I imagine it's like a war zone right now uh, between West Virginia fans and Pitt fans, like right on the border there. That should be a fun place for him. Uh, and actually, he'll talk about that a little bit here in the interview. Chris McKillop from the Breakfast Benz podcast at Trib Live. Chris, thanks for taking time to talk with me today. How excited are you for the return of the Backyard Brawl? I'll tell you this, like a kid in a candy store or or a toddler on Christmas Eve. Um, <laughs> I, I've, 
the amount of people that I've talked to in the last probably two weeks from the Mike McGlynn's to the John Pelusi's to obviously my brother, um, Joey Del Sardo's, um, I, I can honestly speak for a handful of former teammates and, and players. Uh, I cannot wait. And I just found out today that Coach Wanstatt's the honorary captain. Um, I think AccuSure Stadium is going to be absolutely electric, and I cannot wait. You know what he should do? Whether or not he needs them, he's got to come out with crutches, doesn't he? Dude, I, I thought it was a very subtle I don't want to say shocked, but I thought it was a very, cause I had asked Pelosi, you know, about a couple months ago, I said, dude, are, is this going to be a 13, nine tribute? Like, are they going to, they going to have a tribute to the 13, nine team. And John had kind of said like, he wasn't sure if they wanted to give West Virginia really any bulletin board material. So he, he couldn't really comment, but I think the fact that coach wants that was the 13, nine coach. And he's the honorary captain is a very subtle shot at the 13-9 game. I know Shady was just back in town, right? Uh, I know he's doing a national podcast and doing some national TV work, but he was here for some sort of pit pep rally last week. You know, if he comes back, that'll certainly juice things up. I just, I thought to myself, you know, the enduring image of Wanstad on those crutches on the sideline, that would Love that it. would send people into a tizzy if he pulled that move. Love it. I, it's going to be, I, I, I guess I read an article from Lewis Riddick or, or something from Lewis Riddick that said this could be the largest uh, uh, attendance or, or crowd at, we'll call it Action Stadium history. Um, I, I think it, it's, got the, it's got the potential to be something very special. Well, I think they got a long way to go, at least attendance-wise, to match how many people they squeezed in for Pitt and Penn State. But I bet you they could. I bet you they could. I figure They can figure out the, the uh, standing room only crowd, I would imagine. The, the, the last time college game day was at Pitt was when I was a true freshman um, against Virginia Tech. I believe that was the last time college game day was in Pittsburgh. So, um, you know. The, the fact that that they're here, um, it's a Thursday night game on primetime. I'm just, I'm just, I'm tickled pink, man. It's going to be a great game. When you grew up and were playing ball at Kiskey, what did you know? What did you think about the rivalry with West Virginia? I, I'm of a certain age where I feel like it was almost equal, Pitt-Penn State, Pitt-West Virginia, and there was just angst and animosity over having to chase the ghosts of the Penn State rivalry. In a way, sometimes that felt as big as when West Virginia was actually on the schedule. But what did you think when you left high school and went to Pitt about the rivalry? I was thinking about this today uh, on when the rivalry really, really transpired in my life. And as a as a junior and a senior in high school, I was recruited by probably every major Division One school in a five-hour radius minus West Virginia. <laughs> so, the, the, it, honest to God, I don't know why. I mean, whatever it was, it, I just didn't get much uh, attention um, from from West Virginia. So, the fact that uh, that obviously I I got some 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 love from the University of Pittsburgh and not West Virginia as a as a high schooler, you could almost kind of say that that's kind of when it started. And then the moment you walk on the campus, um, you, you realize. Uh, how important uh, this game is and, and the the level of hatred between the two schools. I was actually with Del Sardo, Joey Del Sardo, a couple weeks ago, and we were actually reminiscing. 
Walt Harris, I, I told this to Doran a couple weeks ago, um, when, Walt Harris had a West Virginia period. I don't know if a lot of people know that or, or reporters, but if there was an 18 minute or 18 period um, uh, practice, usually running is the hardest part of practice. And after uh, all, all 18 periods, you run. Um, what, what coach Harris would do is we would have West Virginia period. So about period 16 or 17, he'd stop practice and we would do our wind sprints. And then after, um, our wind sprints is when we did like team, um, or, or, uh, you know, or, or two minute or, or whatever. So essentially he made the hardest part of practice period 16 or 17, which was West Virginia period. And then we finished practice. So again, you learn or, or understand or realize very quickly when you step on campus, the, the level of hatred between uh, Pitt and West Virginia. So in your time at Pitt, you obviously played in four, well, you had four games against West Virginia. You weren't able to play in one where you were hurt. You said that was the 2006 game as a junior, right? Yeah. I, if you, and I've seen this clip far too many times, um, Pat White and Steve Slayton, I think had six total touchdowns and maybe six, you'll you have to fact check me on that, maybe 600 yards total of offense between the two. And there's a clip, you can probably YouTube it. There's a clip of Pat White and Steve Slayton sitting on uh, their sideline, and you can hear the Panther growl in the background on the loudspeakers. And I don't know if it's Pat or Steve, but they look at one another, and they're essentially mocking the um, the Panther growl. So, yeah, that, that was a game, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to play. Um, but but that, in that stuck career, in your head for the next year for 13 to nine. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, every extra rep, every extra set, every extra minute of film study, everything you do in the off season, obviously is to prepare you for the next, for the following season. But, you know, West Virginia is always there, man. It's always in the back of your mind. And then when you, when you see stuff like that, it, you know, it pisses you off. Was that the game where once that was, on the sidelines and he was being interviewed at halftime and he just was asked, you know, Hey, what do you have to do to, to catch up with these guys? And he says, we got to run faster. We're just that not was fast enough. Two, that, that was 2005. So, so that was the year was before. Actually, okay. All right. I, that was in, that was in Morgantown. And I actually listened to Scott's interview. Uh, that's when HB was a senior. I believe eight, that was HB's last year. Um, and I think for a series or two, he, HB had gotten hurt and they put Scott in. Um, and I remember in, in his interview, I, I forget who he, who he was interviewed by. Um, someone had asked him after the game, like, you know, Coach Wonset said, we got to get faster. Like, how fast are they? And Scott was like, I have no idea. I never got close enough. <laughs> That's a great line. Whether he meant yeah. it to be a great line or not, it was a great line. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, those two games, you know, they put up 45 points in back-to-back years, and then you guys go to Morgantown and win 13-9 to and ruin their potential national championship season. Would it have been as memorable if it happened in Pittsburgh, or were you happy that that happened at Mountaineer Field? It, it, 100% at Milan Pushkar Stadium. Like, the, it, it couldn't have been a more fairy tale ending other than, you know, obviously maybe, you know, uh, winning a major bowl game or the national championship. But to put a stamp on my career as a, as a Pitt Panther, to, to beat them in Morgantown and ruin their chances to go to the national championship was obviously special. They, you know, the, the, a lot of those guys are from Western Pennsylvania. So I remember, um, you know, before the 
the game, obviously there's a little tension, but I, I'm not going to name the players, but there was a couple players that I grew up playing with. And I remember several of them saying like, Hey dude, if you want to, you know, if you want to stay in Morgantown tonight, you can, because we're going to be partying. And I'm thinking to myself, like, really, like, really, you guys, <laughs> like, honest to God, like, and I quote, like one of them said, we will be popping bottles tonight. And, uh, to, to, to go in there and spoil that for them was, was awesome. Chris McKillop is with us, former Pitt Panther defensive lineman, also, of course, from Kiski. His brother Scott was on the team, too, that uh, beat West Virginia by a final score of 13-9, the famous game that the Panthers won in 2007 to spoil the party for West Virginia. And then your brother closed out his career the next year at what was then Heinz Field, 19-15, to so he beat him twice on the way out. And, boy, Scott had himself a game uh, against the Mountaineers that day, didn't he, in 13-9? So obviously it was a team effort, but um, if you remember um, the, the, I think it was fourth and two, maybe um, at the end of the game when they were trying to, to make a comeback. So we go up 13, seven, right. And, um, or no, was it 11, seven? Yeah. We, we go up 11. Um, I think it was 11, seven. Cause we ended up, uh, no, it was 13, uh, seven. That's right. And we got the, the safety. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, dude, they returned the opening kickoff to, like, our 40-yard line. And I remember watching this transpire on the sideline, thinking to myself, like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Like, you know, we came da- too 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 close, and we're going to blow this with two or three minutes left. And, and they, they had three unsuccessful plays and went forward on fourth and, like, two. And Scott made the uh, – made the tackle um uh which 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 gave us the ball and ultimately ended the game so it was it was awesome man the whole night was was magical uh, if you were a pit panther i can't believe it's been 11 years since it's been played and it needs to keep being played i think has to be every single year pit and West Virginia and Pitt, Penn State need to play on a regular basis. It, it's a must. See if um all this conference hopping and conference realignment keeps going the way that it's going Chris like you know one of my working theories is like it's going to get so big that they end up regionalizing again like if it splits into basically what becomes a bigger version of the Big Ten and a bigger version of the SEC then maybe we'll just get re-regionalized subdivisions again and Pitt and Penn State and West Virginia can all play each other naturally because they'll be conference rivals again or division rivals or something like that I I think I don't know if this was something that coach Wanstat said or where I picked it up, but when Pitt's doing well, when Penn state's doing well and West Virginia's doing well, it's really good for college football, especially in the tri-state area. One thing about the nature of this rivalry is if you go back and I was just sort of eyeballing the scores, the funny thing about it is with the styles of the teams, whatever they may be, it's just as likely to be 40-something to 40-something, 30-something to 30-something as it is 19 to 15 or 13 to 9 or 19 to 16. Like, there's no consistency in the pattern. Uh, there's no real consistency over one team dominating the other. West Virginia certainly had some runs in the 90s, and Pitt back historically used to blow them out all the time. But, you know, it's just whether it's the high or low scores, uh, which team has momentum, it's so much back and forth between the schools. I think that helped feed the results as well. I agree. As of, as of late, obviously they haven't played in 10 years. I mean, there were a couple of years there where West Virginia kind of blew us out, but um, you know, the last we'll say 10 years, the two played, it didn't matter who was good and who wasn't. It, it was historically a 
you know, pretty, pretty close or a pretty good game. Was that always the game that was spiciest for you guys in, in your time at Pitt? You said that Walt Harris had a special West Virginia period um, with the cross-pollination of the rosters, the guys from Western Pennsylvania that went to WVU and so forth like you were talking about. Was that always the game on the calendar that you would circle and you thought, okay, this is it for the year? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I mean, especially when, when you know, when you're, gosh, I want to say we were four and – uh, four and seven, maybe going into the, to the, to the 2007 game, you know, um, obviously that's, that's a huge game, but yeah, to answer your question, it's always a game that you have circled because of the rivalry, uh, you know, as a, as a former coach and player, you, you know, obviously it's one week at a time. Um, but the West Virginia game was always circled. Was the, was, I imagine it was, I've heard so many stories about it being a, an opposing player was Mountaineer field, the nastiest place to play in. 100%. We had to wear our head. We, I mean, I, I'm sure this wasn't, this isn't the first time you heard this. Um, Cause I think I heard an interview from shady uh, earlier in the week. Like we, uh, when, when they're, when they say we had to wear our helmets on the sidelines, that's, that's, that's a hundred percent true because they would throw, they'd 100% throw batteries at you. Um, you know, on the sidelines, 100% nastiest place I've, I've ever, I've ever played, but you know what you were getting into when you went down there. So you welcomed it. Was 13 to nine. You sort of alluded to this. I've heard this from so many pit people and players that were in that game. It was essentially three and a half hours or however long the game was of just waiting for Pat white to run 70 yards. And he never did like <laughs> you just had that yeah. impending sense. It was going to happen. And you guys just never let it happen. I have to say this, okay, and, and maybe Coach Rhodes or, or somebody can fact check this. I wanted to, so there are after the game you watch film, and then you know on a position by position basis, you, usually you have several MAs, mental uh, missed assignments, mental errors, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I, I want to say if we asked whomever to play a perfect game we played a perfect game on that night if my memory serves me correct the entire defense um for four quarters may only had five or six um missed assignments and when you when you talk to a coach or a player uh, and you tell them that they're like well if you ask for a perfect game you got one um and, and to your point yeah like you you know when's he gonna break it when's he gonna break it okay he just never did because we were in the right place at the right time and we just didn't miss tackles we we literally executed coach Rhodes's game plan to a t and it was perfect final minute here with chris mckillop i gotta ask before i go chris i know that scott ended up marrying a west virginia girl uh how's that gonna work out on september the first uh, you know, I give her a pass, uh, 360, <laughs> I give her a pass most of the years, but, um, I'll actually be with her, um, and him, uh, on Thursday. I wasn't sure if she was like banned to a different side of the stadium and yeah. she wasn't allowed to ride in the same car. Like, you know, is there, are there arguments over what the kids are allowed to wear? How, how does that go? Trust me, I've given her a lot of crap the last couple weeks on the on the Pitt West Virginia game, and I usually give her a pass. But on September first, she is the enemy. Now, and you're living like in Washington, so you're getting closer and closer to the border here. I mean, like you're right where it's, it's, it's I imagine the thickest right now. Oh my word! Like th- there are West Virginia flags all through my neighborhood. I I, uh, I actually texted my neighbor earlier today and just said, "I hope you realize that I'm not a lot. I won't talk to you all week." 
because as <laughs> far as I'm concerned. Don't ask me to water the plants or walk the dog yeah, or anything. As far yeah. as I'm concerned, you're an enemy. <laughs> Chris, it was great catching up with you again, man. I'm glad we could do this. Uh, I'll look for you in the parking lot on the way there. You got it, my friend. Hail to Pitt. All right, so again, my thanks to Chris McKillop. Thanks to Jed Drenning as well. Um, we will preview the Backyard Brawl a bit more with Matt Williamson tomorrow. Uh, Matt's a pit guy himself, used to be on the staff there. And um, we will talk mainly, though, about pro football with Matt as uh, the first NFL games will be a week from tomorrow. Mike Pursuta, plenty more college football with him going into week one festivities after a week zero experience that was split. Go Dukes! Hey, they covered 41 and a half. That was the big one for me over the past weekend. Uh, We'll have some more predictions and picks with Mike. That's coming up tomorrow and Friday with Matt and Mike on the Pittsburgh CityCast.